Hold on to your hats. The countdown to the biggest wellness event of the year is on. Join our side August 15 and 16 in Melbourne for not one but two days of Powerhouse Wellness featuring 11 of Australia's most inspiring, entertaining, educating, fermentating speakers. Damo, what is fermentating? MP, I'll tell you at the summit. Your favourite wellness couch speakers are joined by special guest Nat Kringudis on all things hormones and female health. Join the Up For A Chat girls, the wellness guys, the natural nutritionist Steph Lowe, Kale Brock, Quirky Cookings, Joe Witt, Marcus Pierce, and the rest of your favourite wellness couch podcasters. Regular and VIP tickets are still available, but hurry before this summit is sold out. For tickets, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com. The Wellness Summit is proudly brought to you by Well & You. Be someone that makes you happy. Couch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to A Quirky Journey, the healthy family podcast with your hosts, Joe Witten and Leah Follett. Welcome to A Quirky Journey. Join us as we share our family's journeys to good health. You'll find plenty of inspiration, tips and recipe ideas, as well as stories from everyday people who've struggled and overcome health problems and diet challenges in their own families. I'm Jo Whitten, author of the book and blog, Quirky Cooking, and today I have with me a special guest, Dr. Oscar. Now, I don't know how to spell your last name, Oscar. <laughs> I mean, say it. Sarah <laughs> Lack. Uh, Sarah Lack. Yes. And um, Oscar is a doctor in Mullumbimby, um, down near Byron Bay. And he's a GP who's done some training in nutritional and environmental health. And you've got a special interest in postnatal repletion. Is that right? Yes, that, that's right. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and my journey into that sort would of be post, awesome. Thank you. postnatal repletion, if you like. Yes, please. Um, I, I come from sort of an emergency medicine background. So for mm-hmm. many years, that was the, you know, the most honest type of medicine that I, I found that I could sort of practice a, as a doctor. I didn't know about nutritional environmental medicine. And so I was okay. working as an uh, emergency physician for a number of years. And when I sort of started my uh, family, I didn't like the hours of working in emergency. So I started working as a GP and just realized as a general practitioner, you had very few tools and I was writing a lot of scripts and I wasn't really feeling like I was helping mm. people uh, in, in their journey, unlike with emergency medicine, it can be amazing. Um, you, know, so you help someone in crisis and, and, and you, you get them yeah. uh, through that. And so you have that big adrenaline rush and buzz at the end, I suppose. Sometimes. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and, then, and then you never sort of see the person again. Yeah. And that's, that's the nature of emergency sort of medicine. Whereas with general practice, you know, you, you're seeing people regularly. Mm-hmm. And I just, just, I felt I really wasn't getting any traction with people's issues. And, yeah. Um, my firstborn was born with, you know, quite a few sort of allergy issues and I come from quite an allergic sort of family and had quite a few allergy issues myself and I just had been working with a GP who had been doing nutritional environmental medicine and was very inspired by her work and so it was just a very sort of natural transition into uh, incorporating nutrition and lifestyle into that sort of general practice Um, and for five years, you know, I just I went to every conference I could, read every book that I could and, you know, just mm. totally sort of dived into that whole world. And, you know, in the process, uh, uh, you know, I had three three children with my, my lovely partner, Caroline, and mm-hmm. with, the th- you know, with the third child, um, you know, Caroline got quite derailed, for want of a better term, in terms of her mental health and her physical health. And um, this is a pattern that I'd sort of seen in – uh, a lot of my friends and a lot of people that I'd sort of seen uh, either in emergency or through general practice of this total exhaustion and depletion that would occur around sort of kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a diligent father and a good partner and uh, you know, an interested sort of doctor, I sort of had a look at the textbooks, what it sort of said about this pattern that I was sort of seeing everywhere. And you know, apart from postnatal depression, I couldn't find anything in the textbook. Yeah. There, there were a few articles about postpartum fatigue but there were you know, very small studies and it didn't really look at things in depth and yeah I don't and, remember ever learning anything about it like at antenatal classes or you know no, kind of just get well, through the birth get through the birth <laughs> well exactly and, that, and that, that's one of the things that really was apparent to me you know in the antenatal classes it's all about 
the mother and you know the baby that's coming and yeah. um and, and and the mother is the center of the equation as soon as the baby's born it's all about the baby and the mother unfortunately kind of disappears into their shadows yeah i think uh, a lot of mothers feel like that too because um everybody focuses on the baby and the baby the baby the baby poor mum's just sort of lost <laughs> well exactly and then not supported and yeah. and and part of that sort of conversation it's all about the baby is that society can be quite critical to mothers about yeah. about the baby and and mm. rather than supporting them through a time of need and hardship it's more you know it can be very judgmental and it's oh, just, definitely and a uh, lot of times it's with the best of intentions everybody's got some advice for you but it can be quite stressful <laughs> yeah no, it definitely doesn't come out of any maliciousness but it yeah. just it can be you know very hypercritical and very uh, unhelpful and i've just seen that happen sort of time and time again and yeah. um you know, I, th- I think our society's almost got it backwards. You know, a lot of the conversation around you know, mothers is about, oh, you know, when are you going back to work is kind of the question that mm. is often asked rather than what the question should be is are you actually taking enough time off yes. to recuperate fully? You know? Exactly. And, and do you have a good support network? I mean, that's yep. what the, the dialogue should be about. And should so a big be. part of my work is I suppose just trying to re-engage a healthy dialogue around uh, motherhood and preventing mothers from getting uh, depleted uh, and isolated in the first place. I know when um, I had my second child, I was still doing a bit of work from home as a graphic artist. And Mm. by the time he was about one or two and I had my my other one that was four, three or four, I just remember that complete feeling of dread whenever the phone rang and the pressure to, to keep up your career, I guess, in your work. But you really just want to be with the kids and you want to just, you're tired and the last thing you want to do is work. It's interesting that you said that because I think our society really does push women back into the workforce a bit too quickly. Well, yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And one of the things that was very interesting in my research is about the changes that happens to a mother's brain during Mm -hmm. pregnancy and the changes that happen to her hormones. Yeah. You know, it's it's like the mother gets an upgrade, and the upgrade is around really being in this baby bubble and connecting with their family and starting on this you know mother journey, and that's is not particular. You know, may not be compatible with the previous mm. you know, work life or um, corporate world, and yeah. and um, and so there's often a dissonance or a discrepancy between what the the mother's thinking they should be doing, whatever. Yes. Telling them to do, and then what they're actually sort of feeling, and, exactly. and their intuition. Yeah, and what you're alluding to, your intuition was saying, "Don't answer the phone. Stay yeah. in the baby bubble. Don't." Um, but that's not valued. Yeah. yeah, and you feel you kind of feel guilty that you're being lazy or something if you are uh, working. Exa- <laughs> well, exactly, and there's a whole sort of um, self-criticalness mm. um, and self-devaluation can sort of start from there, and that's a really slippery sort of slope. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that happens with motherhood is this hype, we call it, I just call it hypervigilance. I mean, part yeah. of the upgrade that the brain gets, it becomes very aware um, of the baby and the baby's needs and the environment. Is it hot or is it cold? Is, it, you know, is the baby hungry? Yep. Uh, the mother doesn't go into quite a deeper sleep as, you know. Yes, I remember uh, that. <laughs> yeah, and just, just, um, they say that the average mother loses 700 hours of sleep in the first year. Wow. No, and that's the average mother. So some mothers you know, lose more, and that, no, that's nearly two hours a night of, mm. um, and that's not even talked about in antenatal classes or even said. Well, look, you know, what are you going to do to help offset that? Are you going to make sure you have time to rest during the day, or, yeah. um, you no, that's not discussed. And so when mothers are losing sleep and getting fatigued and tired and getting this baby brain, mm. um. It's all very confusing and very, and potentially very isolating. That's the thing that I've, I've found very tragic. Almost yeah. is that mothers are really suffering at home, uh, often by themselves not, or with little support, or not surrounded by extended family like in the old days. Yeah, exactly. Or not even familiar with what the maternal journey is sort of like. Saying, "Oh, mm. well, I've seen I've seen my you know, aunties and aunties and bigger sisters go through this, and so I know." Yeah what to expect and so it's all new uncharted territory and it can be quite terrifying sometimes if it's not supported yeah yeah I was saying to you just earlier that um I feel very blessed that I had a lot of support 
I live across the road from my mum. It's <laughs> oh, yes. so fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And I've always lived close to my mum and dad. And um, just the – and I, my sisters were close by when we all had our babies as well. They've moved away now. But when we were all young and having our children, we were all close together. And then we had a real good, really good support group through our church and through parenting classes and through um, online parenting um, groups and just um, and living in a small town, you've got that community kind of feel. Anyway, we've got like you know all your neighbours. It was just a really supportive environment. A lot of people have said to me, "How did mm-hmm. you cope with raising?" four kids two years apart and I've just been sure. like well really I had so so much support and um I was taught how to how to get my kids feeding and sleeping well so that most of them by the time they were eight weeks were mostly sleeping through the night I had um you know people bringing me meals my my mother-in-law came to stay for a month each time to cook for me oh. um you know I just was very blessed <laughs> Well, and, and and that's such a great story about how things should be or, yeah. or can be, and and that you know, in the ideal world would be the um, you know the, the, the common mm. yeah the norm rather than the exception, and yeah. uh, uh, and I, without that level of support and people cooking with you and, and helping support and teach and encourage and let, you know making sure that you're able to sort of get enough rest and maybe I don't know maybe helping with the cleaning yes and, <laughs> cleaning. Um, so that you can just sit and feed and sleep <laughs> the first couple of weeks. Well, exactly, and and really be in that baby bubble. I mean, yeah. part of my reading was um, around these what are called postpartum practices, and so every ancient culture has uh, these practices around helping mothers recover, and it's usually yeah. around a month, mm-hmm. sometimes more, sometimes less, but just about really yes. you know, the mother has no responsibility apart from breastfeeding. Yeah. Um, no, the, the ancient Chinese don't even allow the mother to, to bathe wow. or leave the house in the first, you know, they call it the sitting month or wow. um, just to really, and, you know, and the husband is kind of like the policeman at the door. Yep. <laughs> I do remember putting notices on the front door, do not knock on this door. If you need to see us, go around to the back. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 exactly, and and you mentioned about being in a small community. So in, yeah. in a small community, everyone knows your business for good and for yeah. bad. But, <laughs> but the good part of that is everyone, you know, if you're not doing well, will be able to then offer support. Yeah, that's uh, rather right. than, rather than having to put up a front and pretend everything's okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I, I did. Talk- sorry, I did go through. I just wanted to say too, I did go through a harder time after my fourth and I think by then I was I must have been quite exhausted and I also had troubles with food intolerances and so she had trouble breastfeeding. So oh, that was okay. different. Um, I still had the support but my body was probably a bit run down by then. So I'd love to hear some stuff um, that you have to say about how to get your body well after babies. But go ahead with what you were saying. Well, no, but you, you know, you touched on a really interesting point there, which is the progressive yes. um, uh, things that can happen with you know, sequential pregnancies. Mm, close uh, together. Well, no, I'm fascinated by the placenta. The placenta is, you know, mm, one of the most amazing, amazing things amazing? in the unit. It is. And, you know, the placenta belongs to the baby. Yes. Uh, but it is an, this incredible interface with the mother. Mm-hmm. And the placenta has two masters, you know, the mm-hmm. baby and the mother, and it has to negotiate um, this relationship of getting nutrition but not being too invasive. And so it can go wrong either way. Yeah. And part of what can happen, the more depleted a mother gets, you know, the more the placenta may start to cause issues for the mother's health. Mm-hmm. And it can actually um, trigger off, uh, autoimmune disease or preeclampsia or, or, you know, food sensitivities potentially in your case. And it's, you know, the placenta is trying to do the right job, but if it isn't given all the support as well, it, it's not always going to get it right. And, yeah. um, you know, and we're seeing, you know, increasing rates of, uh, uh um, you know, pr- problems with pregnancy and premature, mm. you know, Delivery and preeclampsia, and, and these are all issues related to placental health. Right. Um, now, H- Hashimoto's 
uh, thyroid disease where you know, the mother develops a um, autoimmune reaction to her own thyroid can be triggered by pregnancy. Okay, I didn't know and that. Can, and can often be triggered by having a male child, so much hmm. higher rate with a male baby in utero than with a female. And, Why and is so, that? Uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon <laughs> called fetal microchimerism where you actually get some of the baby's cells into your bioculation. Okay. Yep. Um, and the placenta is too leaky, so the, and in terms of it, you can get more cells uh, getting into the mother's uh, blood circulation. And there's some that the male DNA that has an affinity for the mother's thyroid and start, is part of what can create this autoimmune reaction. Wow. Um, so you but, can but, have leaky gut and leaky placenta. How about that? <laughs> well, d- definitely. Oh, and this, 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 was, this was one of the my sort of uh, aha moments with my research was that the researchers were talking about increased you know, placental permeability, which is mm. another way of saying leaky placenta. Yeah. But they weren't calling it that and they weren't necessarily having the understanding that I do as, as a general practitioner about you know, leaky gut and leaky mm. brain and those kind of things and going, of course, it's, it's a, it's, it is an interface membrane. And, yeah. um, and if, you know, if there's infection or stress or, um, you know, it, it can really change how that interface sort of works. So stress can do that just like it can with leaky gut. Definitely. Hmm. Um, so you know, the, the study is showing that a, a mother that's very stressed during her pregnancy is going to have uh, a slightly higher rate of um, leaky placenta and, and leaky gut. And so it, wow. it can be one of these sort of things that sets off uh, the health trajectory of, of the child and potentially of the mother as well. And so a big part of what I do is trying to get mothers to really honour the process and, and bring in their support as early as they can so they yeah. can not be too stressed during pregnancy. But yeah. the system the system is set up to, you know, that mothers often, uh, you know, we live in a society of fear of what can go wrong and what, yeah. you know, and that really does not serve the mother, you know, in, in, in her short and long-term sort of health really. Yeah. Um, no, we should be saying, you know, supporting the mother without, bringing sort of fear, fear in it, it every, yeah. every, every opportunity. Yeah. So um, looking forward to the birth of the child and enjoying the the time. I mean, pregnancy can be actually quite a lovely time once you get past that early morning sickness. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But that is if you have the time to relax and sit back and you're not going flat out, I suppose, that's when you can get very stressed. Yeah, and society should really uh, ideally sort of honour uh, mother's in sort of second and third trimester saying, well, look, you know, mm. you, sh- you should be working part-time or you should yes. be having, you know. One hour sleep every day at least. And- yeah, yeah, and, 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 and the, you know, the workplace should almost be set up going, well, of course you'd be taking Fridays off or, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever it looks like rather than, um, you know, ex- expecting pregnant yep. mothers to do the late shift or, or whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah. Can you um, give us a couple of, examples of um, women that you've seen with the postnatal depletion and what it looks like? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the things that I was really – I, I kind of put it into a few different categories. And, and one of the categories is um, uh, mental function. So, and, and one of the things we typically see with you know, a mother who you know, has created a baby, birthed a baby, breastfeeding a baby – you know, sleep deprivation is often you know, a change of um, role and uh, you know, a change of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of that, you know, I'm fascinated by this idea of baby brain. So baby yeah. brain is about poor concentration, memory is not working very well, and part of what happens in, in that is that hypervigilance. Yeah. And hypervigilance can bring you know, levels of anxiety and overanalysis of what's going on. And, I remember and, that, especially with my first, just... Um, like waking up in a cold sweat in the night thinking I've, I've, I've laid on the baby, I've squashed the baby and she's not even in my bed and, you know, just the constantly keeping an eye out for the baby. 
Yeah, and then that, that hypervigilance you know, serves a purpose, but it, it's um, it, in our society it can definitely go the other way. And, mm. and, um, and so this is where the anxiety and negative self-talk um, and I suppose early depressive symptoms can often come from. And I, I see there's a lot of overlap between depletion and depression. Yes. Um, you can have one. You can have one without the other. But I think most women who have postnatal depression actually start with depletion and then slide into depression. Yeah. A very interesting study that came out of uh, Australia last year showed that the peak incidence of postnatal depression is actually four years after the birth of the child. That's so interesting because you usually think of it as the first few months, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, in medical school I was I was taught that the first six weeks, but up to the first six months was definitely the time of postnatal depression. And it's like, no, that's not, yeah, I mean, that is a, a spike, but the biggest spike is occurring four years after the child's birth. And so what that yeah. tells us is that there's a legacy effect. So it's not just the… So it's the, building up. Yeah, yeah, um, and sleep deprivation mm. and all these things that we've sort of talked about are part of what sort of lead to that and the social isolation and then, yeah. you know, the, you know and, and so the mental function with, you know, the hypervigilance, the, the baby brain, the, um, you know, just the, the concentration memory uh, aren't working very well is a big part of what we see in mm. depletion. The physical symptoms of just fatigue is, is huge, especially just and, – and, and there are a few interesting sort of um, flavors about the fatigue that you get with postnatal depletion. One of them is just, you know, the 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Uh, crash. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and this is a time when you need to be at the top of your game. Um, yeah, getting dinner ready and getting everybody sorted. Yeah, and, and bath time mm-hmm. and – and bedtime and and uh and often the, you know there might be the husband or other partners sort of coming home from work you know so it's, it's sort of a busy time and it's you know the worst time to be going offline as it were yeah. you can't just uh, go to bed <laughs> no no and, and in an ideal world you could yeah or you well, wouldn't at be, times i have <laughs> or, or you wouldn't be that tired that you would be needing to go to bed yeah. and so but it, it, that seems to be a real time when that fatigue really hits in and there's almost like a decompensation. And so, um, and the fatigue's really, it's quite pervasive. It's, it's there most of the day mm. um, and mothers often feel quite almost a bit disconnected from their environment or yeah. their bodies. And, a bit woozy, um, living on coffee. And, yeah, and just wake, waking up like a zombie, just yeah. like have to sort of get the day together and yeah. uh, drinking coffee, tea, whatever, just Which to sort of makes get, it worse. Well, yes and no, but it's just okay. it, it's you know I'm, I'm I think coffee's not as you know, can get I mean, it's probably a healthier food than most people sort of realise. Yeah. I'm glad just, you said that. <laughs> but but for for me, coffee's all about the quality. Yes, definitely. And so you can have coffee that's you know, poor quality and it's not going to be good for your health, and then quality that's actually very good for your health. And yeah. Uh, I was reading a uh, a study about the blue zones recently. So the blue zones are the most yeah. long-lived peoples in yes, the world. Yeah. It was a study done by National Geographic sort of over the last mm-hmm. sort of 20, 20 years. And most of them drink coffee or tea. Oh, there you go. I feel better. Um, <laughs> I did go off it for about six months while we were doing gaps really intensively and I've gone back on it a little bit now and I'm thinking I hope I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> well, and, and for me it's all about, you know, that. And I've heard a lot of naturopaths say about, about how it trashes your adrenals and those mm-hmm. kind of things. And I think a lot of it has to do with the quality of the coffee okay, and how yeah. much you're drinking. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, I pretty much have one coffee a day if that. So Yeah, so you're very unlikely to be, you know, that's, and to be causing any damage and you're likely to get a lot of health benefits from that. And, and I, I think, you know, it's good to have time off things as yeah. well. So, you know, you had time off coffee and I think it's really good that, you know, people do Mm-hmm. take time off and just to see what it is actually doing whether it's actually serving them or not but yeah. it's uh, uh, but you know if you're having you know i met someone recently who was having 20 cups of coffee and there, <gasps> oh my instant, goodness and there was instant coffee and it was like you know there's no debate about whether that's you know there's wow. no health health benefit in that wow um but it's, it's not where i went to first obviously we had to sort of support there would have obviously underlying reasons for that <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and then I, had i got this person off coffee straight up i would would have never seen them again. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, you're a good doctor. I think I'd like to go to you. <laughs> so do you find 
um, when people do come in to see you with postnatal depletion that you just have to work with it slowly then. Um, and very respectfully, but yeah. no, and, but also there's a, no, we sort of have a three-tiered program and the first okay. part of that is repletion. Yep. And the repletion is around you know, just micronutrients um, and micronutrients include vitamins, minerals and metals and we can sort of talk about the most key ones there. Mm-hmm. And then looking at macronutrients and macronutrients to do with your fats, carbohydrates and proteins and the specific themes that we often see around that. Is there certain tests you do to figure out what what they're depleting? We we do, um, yeah. So, so maybe we'll just spend a bit of time talking about the repletion sort of side of things. So, the typical fingerprint that I sort of see is uh, low zinc, mm-hmm. often very low iron, yeah, um, high copper, mm-hmm. and B group vitamins that tend to be a bit on the low side, and then sometimes you see sort of vitamin D being low to low normal, yeah. Um, and then there are other things that. that that may or may not be part of the fingerprint, but they're the, sort of the core ones yeah. that we typically see. And so we'll do testing around iron levels, zinc levels, copper levels, and B-group vitamins. You know, I, I think that's kind of essential. And depending on someone's symptoms, we may do iodine and other mm-hmm. uh, tests around that. Um, so these are the kind of tests you can just get through um, any GP? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they're all Medicare available. I mean, yeah. vitamin D isn't anymore. That's been taken off. And B12 oh. has been taken off Medicare recently too. Oh. Um, but, you know, they're, um, but, you know, they're not sort of too expensive. And, you know, and depending on how fatigued you are, you know, the, the more fatigued you are, the more tests you do, obviously. Yeah. And... We often will do iron infusions for mothers who have particularly low, and it's amazing to watch someone wake up you know, wow. within 24 hours after having an iron infusion. And how does that work? Is that injections or? An injection into the vein. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to give a very safe type of iron. Um, it's not the average uh, in- injectable iron that we, we use, but especially for mo- mother's uh, breastfeeding or yeah. um, you know, everything that we have to do has to be, you know, uh, very safe, obviously, and, and but the, it's it's great to be able to resuscitate someone. You know, and yeah. iron is such an important thing for energy production, for detoxification of gut toxins in the liver, and it also makes um, red blood cells and okay. um, uh, amongst other things. So it, iron's a pretty big player. Yeah, zinc's a very big player as well. Yeah, um, I being repleted in that. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and we'll often universally start people on magnesium. There's, you know, it's very hard to actually test magnesium well, um, and you know, magnesium is needed for 300 different enzymes. So it's a pretty big player. Uh, so we'll often start people sort of on a, on a moderate dose magnesium uh, w- without testing, mm-hmm. um, and then copper. Copper often goes up during pregnancy, mm-hmm. and I see a lot of mothers who are copper toxic, and mm-hmm. so this is. Part of uh, some interesting studies, sort of showing that because of estrogen and because of hormonal changes during pregnancy, copper levels will go up. And you know, copper is actually a very important thing for making babies. Mm-hmm. But if you're low on zinc and don't have good uh, other um, no, uh, amino acids and proteins to help regulate your metals, I mean, if copper is too high, then that can uh, increase anxiety and hypervigilance, and oh. um, you know. Uh, can cause pain and headaches and various other things. So, hmm. you know, copper just—if you have too much copper in your system, it just makes whatever problem you have worse. Right. Interesting. Um, and so, this is one of the you know, things that. And the first thing that you do is, is replete someone's zinc to be able to then reduce their copper. Hmm. And so it's, uh, you know, it's so just using those micronutrients are really important to get balance on those. Mm-hmm. And often mothers just are starting to feel so much better just once we do that. Yeah. Uh, then we sort of move on to macronutrients. Mm-hmm. And macronutrients are, again, sort of proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. Mm-hmm. And universally I'll start mothers on DHA, yep. uh, which is a special omega-3 that either comes from algae or fish. Mm-hmm. A third of our brain is made up of DHA and often you know, the 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 baby has just robbed the mother of a lot of her DHA to make its own brain. And so part of the baby brain is, is related to 
uh, just low levels of DHA. It's an expensive test to measure someone's DHA, and almost everyone that I've tested has low DHA. So, so you might as well just take it. <laughs> just, just take it, and you know, I'll typically give you know, um, a gram twice a day of DHA and do that for anywhere from six weeks to six months, depending on what's going on for someone. Yeah. And again, that's a, that's a game changer as well. Wow. Uh, I get so much good feedback about, yeah, that was good, that was good, but that DHA you started me on, that was no, well, that's good. Was the one that made the difference, and so no, I really listen to that sort of feedback. Yeah. Um, and often we sort of see lowish protein and lowish cholesterol in mm-hmm. um, our sort of recovering mothers, and so we'll often just start mothers on a you know, increasing um, healthy fats and just yep. starting to really look at um, a healthy sort of proteins and and just seeing whether they need help with digestive support as well. And so the whole gut issue thing, I'm obviously very fascinated with that. Mm. Um, Like you said, the stress of pregnancy and the stress of life and everything can cause gut issues. So you find that um, this is linked, do you think, with? Oh, oh, definitely. And often mothers have a few gut issues leading up to pregnancy and and the pregnancy and birth and the whole stress can make them a lot worse for Mm -hmm. sure. I see that happen all the time. Or there can be a bit of a, um, if someone's quite deplete in in protein and um, a lot of resources are used to sort of breastfeeding, those kind of things, it can actually cause a gut crisis. I mean 50% of the protein that we eat never makes it to the bloodstream. It gets used by the gut lining to reform itself. Okay. And so when we're looking at you know, anyone who's got poor gut function, you know, protein is a really big part of uh, the gut rehab. Oh, that's good. And- it's funny when I have been sick and especially after having kids, when I did go through my downtime after, mm. it's funny, you should mention four years because it was about then after mm. my last, I was really low yeah. on everything. I got down to 42 kilos. Wow. Okay. Um, And a bit of depression, anxiety, feeling completely alone and not really confident at all anymore, which I always had been pretty confident. Sure. Um, But just the whole – I was craving protein and I would want to just sit down and eat like beef mince patties for every meal. I just wanted protein and that – other things made me feel sick, but protein was what I was craving. It's funny, isn't when you, it? When your intuition was telling you you need that iron, you need that B12, mm. you need that protein, um, you know, all things you can get from red meat. And I think yeah. one of the things that can happen is you know, we, we have a very fat-phobic sort of society. Yes, and I had been always fat-phobic, and it's only been in the last few years that I realized, no, that's wrong, I need to eat the fat. Yeah, I mean all the old cultures revered fat and, you know, yeah. they um, – and, you know, it's, it's a very important part of sort of staying well. And it's only the last sort of 40 years that we've suddenly gone off fat and you know, our society is not any healthier, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. so, um, but it's, you know, it's all about sort of healthy fats. And, and, yeah. um, and you know, you, it, it would almost be impossible to be 42 kilos mm. and not be depressed, I would imagine, yeah. it's because yeah. of, you know, what that would mean to your you know, brain function and mm-hmm. brain chemicals and um, – yeah, so it's um, – but, again, that, you know, that is you know, almost part of the end of depletion when you're actually starting to get weight loss. Yeah. Um, that your body can't even maintain its weight and, and doesn't have – you know, And all you want to do is sleep. Yeah, it's a, it's a resource crisis and your body starts to go into hibernation. I mean, I've seen yeah. that happen biochemically and hormonally that the body starts to go into a hibernative state. Yeah. Which, you know, if you've got four kids, that's not an option. No. <laughs> I do remember locking myself in my room and just going to, going in my, hopping in my bed and saying, I can't, I just can't. And my wow. kids would be running around and the youngest was one. And so, yeah, I went through a bit of a rough patch there. Um, but thankfully I did have all the support, like I was saying, and got through it. And that's when I started seeing a naturopath and totally changed my health around with, with the way I was eating and, like you were saying, all the micronutrients. Just pumping them into me, so that really right. helped. Well, you know, and what happens to a mother in a similar situation to yourself? Had four kids, you know, is on the slippery slope and doesn't have that support. I know, and doesn't know what to do. 
Yeah, and typically they'd go see their local GP. The GP would you know, correctly diagnose that they're depressed, mm-hmm. but unfortunately would often start them on an antidepressant mm-hmm. without, you know, and if an antidepressant is needed, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'll be the first person to recommend that, but yeah. without doing all this other work. Um, it's just a Band-Aid. <laughs> well, it's just a Band-Aid and it's just, you know, is, is the mother actually really recovering? No, yeah, she's exactly. not. She, she's just getting out of, you know, she, her brain chemicals are just being balance so she's not in this depressive state yeah but it's still it's still depleted that's right Um, can you just tell that story about i read on one of your articles about the lady with the five kids and um, oh yeah i mean yeah yeah so this was um no i was a, a fairly new gp working in a small rural town and um and this woman came into the emergency department, and oh no! Initially, she came into, into the uh, my GP sort of surgery, and she had five kids, and she just was just super skinny, was looked was totally wrecked, mm. and she just didn't know where to turn. Yeah. Uh, um. And she, I'm pretty sure she yeah she was was Catholic, and so you know birth control wasn't really sort of an option. You know there was, and. And and I just realised that she was in a pretty sort of bad way, and I didn't know everything that I sort of know now. But I, you know, I certainly got this you know, a social work referral and tried to get uh, someone to do a sort of a home visit to see whether she needed home, and you know ordered some blood tests and um, you know didn't and didn't see her again. Yeah. Um, for another, I think, a uh, year and a half maybe, and then she presented to, to the emergency department. Had another kid, sort of, you know, since. I sort of saw her last, yeah. and she had you know, quite bad pneumonia. And we sort of did an X-ray in the department, and we you know, put a drip and gave her some intravenous antibiotics. She'd come in in the morning, and as um, soon as the sun started to go down, she just said, "I have to go." Oh. And she was still quite unwell. And she said, "I have to go. I have to go." And we're like, "No, we want you to stay. Can we ring someone?" Blah blah blah. And she just she didn't rip her drip out, but you know, pretty much did that and just said, "Look, I need to get this out." And, and she left. And you know, yeah. I'm. And I, I've never seen her since. And so for me, it's almost been a bit of an enigma what's happened to this yeah. uh, to this woman and you know, her, her story. And um, scary, but that was my, isn't it? Well, it was scary. And for someone who hadn't really, you know, it was my first you know, um, acknowledgement of this pattern of depletion and just someone who was so dedicated in her role that she could not, you know, she couldn't put herself first. Mm. And, and what and happens was, to the family if mum goes downhill and ends up dying or something? You know, that's well, not really going to help. <laughs> or, or, or she's really under-functioning. And is, yeah. yeah, and so, I re- no, so I've learned that if mothers are not well, families are not well, mm-hmm. communities are not well, and our society really sort of suffers. And, yeah. um, you know, that's something we can't afford as, as, as mothers to be, you know, really under par and not supported and not, you know, fulfilled. And so, right. yeah, so... That's one so, thing that I was really taught um, that now and then give your baby a bottle of breast milk and go out with your husband or just go relax or do something else, you know, get out for a few hours um, and don't feel like you have to be stuck to the baby 24-7 because sometimes you need a break or sometimes you need to go have a sleep or something. So I was taught that, so that was good. Totally. And, and um, you know, because... You you always will be a mother, but it's really important to step out of that mother role yes. for you know short periods and just you know reacquaint with yourself and your partner and yeah. um, no, I mean our, our our joke at the clinic is that there is sometimes a very fine line between mother and martyr. Yes, <laughs> and society doesn't really support, and so you know, a well-intending mother will often step over the line into. Being a martyr, yeah. um, and you know, no blame or, or they're judgment. They're trying to do the best they can. They're trying to do the best that they mm. can, and, and um, you know, as a result, end up neglecting their own needs and and um, and their own health. Often, mm. you know, I've seen that sort of time and time again. And so, a big part of what I do is trying to really be part of that healthy dialogue around support and um, you know, mothers sort of um, supporting each other. Mm. I think that's a really big part and, and not having this bravado, badge of honour kind of yeah. um, discussion that can I've seen occur in mothers' groups. And yeah. Be very open when you're having struggles. Exactly. 
I was always in mothers' groups as well and I found that um, that's where you got the best support if you were really open with each other and um, if you needed help, you asked. And that's the thing I think sometimes people are too proud to ask. Or just I'm not familiar with the fact that that now is the time to ask or it's okay to ask. It's okay to ask, exactly. Yeah. Don't be scared to ask because a lot of people, you know, especially friends and family would love to jump in but they don't want to push themselves forward and be a bother. Uh, Exactly. It's amazing how, you know, when someone's asked to help, how happy and willing and able they are to. It's, again, something that I sort of see all the time that people are happy to um, come down for a few weeks or I think yeah, you mentioned yeah. your, your grandmother came and helped for a month. Um, yeah, my mother-in-law. Or mother-in-law. But, yeah, but, you know, they need to be asked. Yeah, that's right. Um, Sorry, I just realised I interrupted you and you were talking about the, um, was it the four stages? Well, yes, yeah, so, so the we have sort of three stages. Um, so the first stage is the repletion and that's kind of most of what we do in the clinic is just getting mothers from... No, maybe a one out of ten to a four out of ten, and just really improving their energy. And and you know, we do a lot of work around uh, organ function and hormones as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the organ function often is related to gut and yeah. brain function. Yeah. And you now we have to individualize a little bit with with people. Sometimes some people, you know, some others are, are fine there, but it's um. And then the sort of second part of what we do is what we call the recovery. Mm-hmm. And recovery is. Uh, a lot about uh, education. It's a lot about sort of the mother re-engaging back into her community. Mm-hmm. And so the education is around um, you know, what, are, you know, what are healthy foods in the kitchen, what are healthy you know, personal care products, you know, what's a good toothpaste for your child, what's, you know, yeah. um, that level of information. And that's where I come in. <laughs> well, exactly. And so, you know, I'll, I'll often outsource a lot of that, but it's just, you know, mm. but if a mother's depleted, she she doesn't have the brain power to take a lot of that exactly. stuff on. She's totally overwhelmed and doesn't know where to begin. And that's that's what I see so much of. And it really, you know, your heart really goes out to to these women who just need, they just need help with the first steps and getting started a lot of times. Yeah, and and if you start talking to a, a depleted mother about you've got to have organic food and you've got to you know, <laughs> well they just start feeling bad about themselves. They do. And so and so what I'll often say is that when the time is right, we're going to look at these things. Yeah. But now we're just going to focus on you and your biochemistry. Yeah. Um, and then and so no we and uh, and then it's about reengaging in in the community and so that, no that's partly sort of exercise that's partly. Um, Know, work or you know, volunteer work or you know, how, how does you know, a mother sort of you know, uh, helping out at schools, going back to work, you know, going back to the corporate world, whatever the, the re-engagement community is going to be like and the exercise is sort of part of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can over-exercise definitely. Mm-hmm. As, yep. as, uh, um, I but, remember no. my naturopath telling me I wasn't allowed to ride my bike for more than half an hour because <laughs> I was still <laughs> trying to gain weight. Yeah, exactly, and you can you know, get your hormones working against you rather than for yeah. you if you overexercise, and mm-hmm. um, and you know, so the recovery phase is is you know, much more sort of enjoyable, but it's about you know that reengagement, and then the last phase is about realization. So this is you know a, a mother realizing all her sort of full potential and just seeing um, motherhood as a spiritual journey, mm-hmm. um, and again, there's something that we have. Either people come into the clinic, or I'll get people to sort of you know, see you know, life coaches or people yeah. who specialise in, in that level of of. of um, but you know that, that's where it, it's fantastic. And so we sort of you know uh, our, our sort of analogy is you know one out of ten is a depleted mother, four out of ten is where we start the recovery, and seven out of ten is when they start to sort of you know the uh, realisation part into you know, be, being the amazing, uh, fulfilled mother. And that's, you know, that's, I think, every mother's right to be able to be, you know, to be somewhere on that journey and, and, and moving ahead. Yep. That's good. Yeah. So um, now I had another question for you here somewhere. Um, 
I noticed in one of your articles you had the comment, the phenomenon of intergenerational epigenetic changes in the expression of our genetics is very complex, but explains in part the higher rate of allergic disease and autoimmune disease that we're seeing in our society. In short, we cannot do the same as what our parents or grandparents did and expect the same level of health. We literally have to up our game just to experience the same level of health as our parents, let alone experience better health. Mm. So, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, because you often think, you know, I look back at the way that my grandparents ate, for instance, and there's yeah. things that they ate that I wouldn't be able to eat. Yeah. Um, I couldn't cope with, um, like the refined white flowers, which they did have in their diet. Um, yeah, yeah. Can and you there's explain this, a bit about that? Yeah, this is something that I'm totally fascinated by. Mm. And, and, and no, I remember as a you know, young medical student just hearing people sort of talk about, you know, people being able to smoke until they're 80. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and, and seeing smokers getting problems much earlier in life. And, yeah. and you know, there's almost like a fast, uh, the disease, you know, the, the typical time when people will get diseases getting earlier and earlier. Mm. We're even seeing you know, teenagers now with osteoporosis where they're starting to get thin bones. We're wow. seeing thyroid disease. You know, when I was a medical student, thyroid disease only happened in elderly uh, yeah. Ladies, I mean, that's typically where you sort of saw it. Okay. And then, you know, as a you know, young doctor, you know, we're seeing it in um, you know, middle aged women, and now we're seeing it in, happening in, in women in their 20s. And so, there's like this um, hastening of disease. And it's just you know, one in four, I think one in four, one in five kids starting school is going to have a significant allergy. I mean, yeah. that's incredible. That's amazing. I was talking to a group of older women at the CWA at a CWA, CWA meeting yesterday, mm, yeah. and um, just you know they generally don't have allergies amongst that group, yeah. And it's but their grandkids have heaps. <laughs> so it, yeah, exactly. And this phenomenon is something that we should be really, really concerned about as mm. a society. Um, you know, I think the first reported case of anaphylaxis. In history, was just over a hundred years ago. Wow! Before then, it wasn't you know, bee stings or people yeah. having you know, dying from. You no, know, it's not something you could n- not be diagnosing, but you're not aware of what it is. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. Someone swelling up and dying. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a new phenomenon to our species hmm. you know, within the last hundred hundred twenty years or so. And so, and now we see so many kids. Uh, carrying an EpiPen, yeah. uh, I've got an EpiPen myself. You know, these are things that um, uh, are common in mainstream. Yeah. So and, why do you think that's happened? What's your yeah, take so, on it? Well, epigenetics is, is a really no, – we can't change our genes, mm-hmm. but we can change how our genes may be expressing themselves. And so the analogy that I use is our genes is like an ingredients list that an, uh, a restaurant might have. Yeah. That's kind of pretty stuck, and that only very changes very slowly. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes tens of thousands of years for, for that level of change to occur. Mm-hmm. But the epigenetic changes happens in the womb, yeah. and this is where the baby kind of is sensing what's happening out in the environment and goes, okay, I'm going to need to use these genes more than other genes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the analogy that I use, it's almost like a recipe so the baby's going, okay, with these ingredients, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is going to be my recipes that I'm going to be needing for this world that I'm going out there into. Okay. And, and, the, and the recipes can change very, very much between generations. Yeah. And so a baby can be born allergic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sensing, okay, there's, it's a pretty hostile environment out there from an allergen micro point of view. So I'm, I'm going to have to be really on hyper alert around foreign things. Yeah. And then if a baby's born you know, via uh, cesarean section and isn't breastfed, you know, again, that yeah. just heightens the signal. Yeah. Um, if the, you know, the baby is growing up in a very uh, spotless environment where there are yeah. no germs, then it's going to, again, heighten the, that uh, allergic, well, yeah, um, allergic potential, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... The other thing that's also happening is that our foods are much more allergic than they were a couple of generations ago. So the wheat that we have now has a lot more gluten. Mm-hmm. Now the peanut butter now that we have is roasted at a much higher temperature and there's something about 
that caramelization of the, of the peanut that is even much more allergic to the immune system than you know, peanut butter they would have been eating you know, a generation ago. So, you know, this is kind of a ramping up on many sort of levels. Yeah, and then all the chemicals in our environment. Well, it, it, exactly, and, and it's so multi-layered. And yeah. I think as a society we should be so concerned about this avalanche of mm. um, you know, disease and ill health that's sort of going on, but it's kind of been normalised. Yeah. No, no, and I'm you're odd if you, if you buck the system. <laughs> well, yeah. And if, and, um, you know, you don't if want you, those chemicals and those foods, well, then you're just weird. <laughs> you're being weird and, you, you know, you're being a, an unnecessary troublemaker. Yes. And, and, um, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I live in the Byron Shire and so there are lots of people who have been very conscious about what mm. sort of doing, the clothes their kids wear, the schooling, the, yeah. the chemical-free. You know, obviously we have the lowest rate of immunisation in Australia mm. here. You know, so there's a lot of, um, I suppose, almost reactive parenting in, yeah. in that way rather than just going with the norm and ex- Accepting everything and you know, putting fluoride in water is fine. Don't question that. Chlorinated yeah. fine. Don't question that. Um, and but but you know, that that's in reaction to what we're seeing in our society. Mm. That things you can understand it. Well, I can understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I've, I've got three kids, nine, seven, and five, and mm-hmm. now they're going to a school that's nut free, and yeah. and most schools now are nut free, yeah. and it's just wow, that's. I remember, as a kid, I'd never met a kid who had a nut allergy. No, I don't remember meeting anyone either. <laughs> um, and I remember the first time I met someone with a nut allergy in, in the emergency department and as a medical student, I was like, wow, that's so fascinating. You know, I, I had to read up about it. I didn't know anything. How, how could that even be possible? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how could someone be reacting to a peanut? I mean, it's, you know, it was in, and now it's like, well, how many allergies does your child have is kind of more where the conversation yeah. Yeah. And do you see, um, so you're talking about the genetic recipes, for instance. Yeah. Do you feel that that can be changed um, by better health and better, you know, gut health? The, the, like research, the, the research is still pretty um, young. Yeah. Uh, we do know that you, you know, one's own health is, is affected by the previous four generations, but yeah. there, is a, <laughs> there is a lot you can do to... To slowly reverse those epigenetic changes, mm-hmm. so it's not a sentence for life. Yes, but you have to like this is why you, know, you have to be on top of your game if you're wanting to um, you know, slowly reverse those changes and experience sort of normal or optimal health. Mm. And this is one of the things that I, you know, um, I especially get from my older patients is is why. Why is everyone so worried? No, we never, we never had to worry about these sort of things. Yeah. Um, no, I mean a comment that I get from my that I, I heard my mother-in-law say um, a couple of Christmases ago was, "Why would they put anything harmful in our food?" Yeah. It's <laughs> no, no, a very innocent sort of comment, but didn't yeah. no. Um, and it's like, yeah, well, why would they put anything harmful in our food? It's just one is is a certain unconsciousness, uh, two is a certain uncaring, and three. Is that things are evolving? Yeah, that you know, a certain amount of gluten wouldn't harm someone who, with a certain epigenetic sort of set, mm-hmm. but is going to start harming someone who is um, uh, much more primed from an epigenetic sense. So, mm. well, that's yeah, fascinating. It is fascinating. It's, it's very complex, and you know, yeah, and it is. Mm. It's still pretty. Young, but now what they're talking about is the exposome now. So the exposome is a fancy word for the environment. Okay. Um, and if you you can manipulate that, yes, very much. And if you live in an environment that is low toxin, that you're doing, you know, you're getting good sleep, you have, you know, you're connected with your purpose in life, you're getting good amounts of activity, and you're eating food that is good for your particular body. You know, you have a nice an individualized diet. Yeah. Um. You can experience uh, amazing health, and I have no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, but you do need to commit some time, effort, resources to that. It's not just going to happen That's right. ac- accidentally. And for those who are stressed about the whole idea of it, like you said, it's little by little. Yeah, yeah. I mean, small changes. I mean, it's just you can only do one step at a time. Yep. 
and I'm really support, supportive of people just going, okay, you need to start with looking at your own biochemistry. Then we can look at you and know, your family. And, and mm. um, But I think people can get overwhelmed by the bigger picture. Yes, definitely. And I see a lot of mothers trying to do everything at once. Yeah. They're trying to learn how to ferment food. They're trying to learn how to do bone broth. They're trying to learn how to um, you know, get harmful toxins out of the home. They're trying to learn, you know, everything at once. Yeah, um, which is pretty much, I mean, we've been working on it for years, but once we started GAPS, it was like fast forward, let's try and get this done. <laughs> and it can be very overwhelming. Well, and this is where, you know, uh, people need support from people like yourself and myself to help guide them through what is a, a maze and a minefield at the same time. And work on what's most important first and add things in as they can. Exactly. And realize it's not the same journey for everyone. Exactly. As, as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we, one of the big things that we work on is individualized diets. Yes. Um, you know, what's one person's superfood is another person's poison exactly. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, people often ask me, what's the perfect diet? And it's like, well, there, you know, there, there isn't. <laughs> there isn't a perfect diet. No. <laughs> um, if only it was that easy. Oh, if, if it was, then we'd all be doing that. We wouldn't right. be having a discussion about what is the perfect diet. That's right. You know, it would be so obvious that. You know, that's what we eat. Yeah, that's what we eat. And that's what we've always been eating. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for that. That's really interesting. So um, I have got a link to an article that you wrote for Goop, I think it's yes. called. And yep. I'll put that link at the bottom of the page on the Wellness Couch um, website so everyone can have a look at that because that goes into a lot of detail about what we were talking about and I think it will be very helpful outlining your um, plan. Fantastic. And, and if any, anyone wants to um, see more of what uh, I'm sort of doing, um, yes. I've, I've got a book that's pretty much ready for publication. Oh, that's exciting. You know, I just need... Yeah, I just I just need a little bit more social media support to get the publishers um, oh, interested. Okay, well we better work on that then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but get just you know, there. but the web- website is just uh, com. So it's O S C A R S E R R A L A C H dot com, um, and you can find out more about what we're sort of doing there. We'll put that link down below as well. Great. And do you have any? Do you have social media as well? Uh, we do, but you can find. Um, no, we've just started an Instagram page. We've got a, a Facebook page for work, but you can um, sign up for our newsletter um, okay. or sign or sign up for our interest in the up and coming book. Yeah, well, I'm definitely interested. I think it sounds fascinating. Thank yeah, you so and, much. And, Sorry, go ahead. Well, and and the book is just as partly a workbook, partly just you know, so so mothers and fathers and, and uh, associated sort of caregivers can learn more about this whole realm and then there's going to be a lot of uh, links to, um, to supportive groups like yourself that mm-hmm. um, you know, they're just that are going to then people can get momentum uh, yeah. on yep. once they've done the initial sort of work. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know you're trying to move office today, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry, well, I've taken so long. <laughs> oh no, no, it's, it's been great talking to you, Joe. And yeah, we are moving office today, and our new clinic will be uh, turning into, uh, into a perinatal wellness center. So it's very oh, sort of that's exciting. Awesome. And that it's will a, be in Mullumbimby. In Mullumbimby, and so perinatal is just about prenatal, antenatal, and postnatal sort of care. Now we'll still be doing sort of general uh, uh, practice and family medicine out of out of there, but we're going to have a special focus on educating and supporting mothers so it's a very very exciting so it's actually really probably exciting. a very apt day that we're talking so we're, yeah. we're moving our old clinic into this uh to our new one so well you guys down there are very lucky to have um oscar to help you out um i would love to have had some help like that when i was at the stage that you know all the baby stage it was a big time we, big time we would have, life. We, we would have all appreciated some help too myself included yeah. <laughs> oh you're doing a good thing well, thank you so much and thank you everyone for listening into A Quirky Journey. We hope you enjoyed it and that it was encouraging and helpful. I will have transcript notes for anyone who wants them, so just email me at joe at quirkycooking.com.au if you want the transcript. You can also post questions and comments on our Facebook pages. What was your Facebook page called, Oscar? Uh, it's Dr. Oscar Saralak. Okay, so you can... Uh, and- 
probably yeah. go on there and ask questions if you want to, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes, yep. you can. And um, or leave a question online and I can forward it on. Um, and there's also the website, thewellnesscouch.com backslash a quirky journey, where you can leave questions as well. And we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and also check out thewellnesscouch.com where you can view the entire range of wellness podcasts available. Keep working on those small changes and we'll be back to share more of our journeys with you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thank you, Oscar. Bye. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.